Right, let's turn to um, second chapter of Luke. We begin this series in Advent. And it's good to think about these things before we really get too involved with all the busyness of Christmas. Let's find out what it's about from day one. So if you haven't a Bible, don't I'll read to you. It's Luke chapter 2. Oh, it's come up. There you go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Carinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house, to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's the word of God. Well, we're thinking this morning about births, so it's a good time to kick off. And um, I trust these two young ladies. Um, it wasn't too difficult, the delivery. Because um, um, some deliveries are difficult. I've been sat next to my wife as she gave them. I was very glad that it was her, not me, that was going through these things. I'm sure most men... I saw one birth this week was 16 pounds, 2 ounces, which is quite a lump to push out. To put it mildly, a friend of mine who was in veterinary school when I was there, she was telling us a few. She was telling us that she was um, with her daughter-in-law in Sheffield, and um, it was afternoon, and she was at full term. And she said to Linda, "Yeah, I'm ready. I'm going." And Linda, it was rush hour, late afternoon. She says, "You're never going to make the hospital." She says, "I know." So my veterinary friend Linda, uh, in the bathroom, uh, as a daughter-in-law on the floor, this little hand appeared. Well, fortunately, she reduced the, the, the hand and delivered the baby. So we thought, actually, our veterinary training was very good. <laughs> so if anyone needs any help, I know I, could, I know who could help you. But anyway, simply, it simply says here, verse 2, And she, that's Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, we, we don't know anything about the delivery, but we, this is the most extraordinary birth that's ever happened on this planet. And, um, and we're just going to look at it very briefly on just for four, in four different settings, just to set the scene. And um, it just simply says, in those days. Well, we're going to look at those days. We're going to, first of all, look at the world setting, the world setting. King Herod is the, the, the client king in Judea. He's not a Jew. He's an Idumean from the south. He converts to Judaism. He gives a lot to the Jewish people. He's a beast of a man. He kills his wife, at least one of his wives. Many of his sons he kills. Anybody that threatens him. He builds the second temple, but he's a beast of a man. And um, the people liked him because he gave a lot of charity to Jewish people. But anyway, he serves under this other person. It says, in those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Now, Caesar Augustus 
This is not, that's not his real name. Caesar just means emperor or king. And Augustus means the honorable one, the esteemed, the renowned. His real name, he was born Gaius Octavius. He was born the 23rd of September, B.C. 63. His great uncle is best known because his great uncle was Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar thought the world of this young, his great nephew. And uh, he said that when he died, he would take over the, the emperor, the empire. As you know from your history books that Caesar, Julius Caesar, was assassinated by Brutus and his colleagues. And so um, Gaius Octavius, as Octavian as he was called, uh, Caesar Augustus here, takes over with two other people, Mark Antony and Marcus Lepidus. They fall out for various reasons. Mark Antony, you know the story, falls in love with Queen Cleopatra. Anyway, it all resolves itself in the Battle of Actium when Caesar Augustus Octavian takes over. Now, he's a great king. He's a great emperor. He's a great Caesar. He establishes the Pax Romana. It's safe to travel from Scotland to the Middle East through the Roman Empire. It was a great place um, to be. He was, renowned, he was worshipped as a god. In fact, they found, only recently they found in, in Lebanon, some, in Baalbek, some, a stone that says about Caesar Augustus, the saviour of the world. They thought the world of him. He was a ruthless man. He was wise enough to let local kings rule in his stead. But the problem is you need money to run an empire. Like Mr. Cameron, you need money to run a country. And to be a Roman citizen was a tremendously prestigious thing. They had the, what they used to say, bread and circuses. It was, you got immense amount of social benefits to be a Roman citizen. It was a great privilege to be a Roman citizen. But you, they're the, a massive army, but to run this thing, you need money. Now, he did what Mr. Cameron can't do. He taxed people in other countries which is quite a good dodge if you could get away with it. So what he did, he, he issued a census. In fact, there was a census every 14 years to about AD 280. And, and this was the first census, probably about BC 8, 8 or BC 6. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. The problem is the Jews did not like paying to these pagan infidels, these Romans, and they objected. But pressure's put on Herod. So he has to, he has to deliver on this, this, this census, which will lead to a poll tax. So it takes him about between two and four years to establish this, but a deadline is set. He gets the, the final word from him. This census has to go through because money has to be collected. So pressure is put on all the male uh, citizens of, of Judea. And it says here, so it's about, the, the census is about four, 6 to 4 BC. I'm sorry that Jesus was not born uh, AD 0. He, was born, he must have been born before 4 BC, because that's when Herod the Great died, and he, he was... Um, he was born before, while well, the great was alive, as we shall see in future weeks. So anyway, verse 3. And when everyone went, to his, uh, everyone went to his own town to register. Now actually, that is not a Roman legislation. There's nothing in any Roman history or, or 
legislation or writing that the Romans ever insisted on. This is what Herod had insisted on. This is a Jewish command. Now, the point is this. God is, moves in the mind of this pagan Roman emperor to have a census. God also then moves in the mind of this despotic Edomian half-Jewish king, Herod, to cause every male Jew to go to the place of their birth. Because you remember, when Joshua came into the Promised Land, every Jewish family was allocated in their tribe to a certain bit of real estate. Joseph knew where he lived was Bethlehem. So then we move on, not just to the world setting, we've moved on to the national setting. And so it says, look at verse 4 and 5, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, the scriptures are very specific where the the man of God, the person of God, the Messiah, must be born. God moved in the heart of the prophet Micah 700 years before. And God says to them, through the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which Ephrathah is the old name for Bethlehem, though you are small among the towns of Judah, out of you will come one who will be the ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times, from the days of eternity. God said, I'm going to send a person. He will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So that's the, that's, that's the setting. And God will make sure that happens. Nothing more certain. All the promises in the Old Testament are fully met. Now let's then move on to the, the, the personal setting. And so we, have, we go to this town, this nondescript town in, in north of Judea, Nazareth, and there's this young girl. She's probably between 13 or 15, a, a, a good, godly young girl. And, and then one day, it says an angel, by the name of Gabriel, uh, appeared to her. And, and he says to her, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. You have found favor. You know, don't be afraid, he says. You have found favor with God. She's probably absolutely petrified. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you shall call him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son, listen to it, the son of the most high, son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now she's thinking, how will this, how will this be, she says, because I'm still a virgin. She, even in those days, they know how babies came, you know. And so he goes on. He, he said... Um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born will be called the Son of God. So what is happening here? The Spirit of the living God, the God who created this 
planet and all every creation will come upon you, he said, and an egg from your ovary will be fertilized in miraculously, supernaturally, by the power of the living God, and a, a, a child will be formed in your womb. This child will be fully God, a fully man, and he will be the son of God. That's what he's saying. <laughs> she says, it's impossible. And he says, nothing is impossible with God. Okay. So, as she says, may it be unto me according to your word, I guess that's when conception happens. And in a few weeks' time, well, the periods stop, and she's found she's pregnant, and she's getting bigger. She's betrothed to a, lo- a man she loves, who's probably only about 19 or 20, a man called Joseph. He doesn't live for a long while because he, he doesn't live while Jesus' ministry is dead by that stage, when Jesus comes to minister. But she's very fond of him. She's betrothed, which is as good as she's engaged, engaged, which is as good as marriage. The only thing that's missing is the ceremony and consummation. If you chose to break that, it was like a divorce. But you can think through the conversation. She said, um, I need to see you, Joseph. I need to speak to you, Joseph. Yeah, sure. I just love being with you. I'm pregnant. Now, it's not a big deal in Britain. Well, it is really in many ways. But then it's catastrophic. Because he knows she's been playing away. And she knows... The, the village folk could easily stone her. That's what you do with whores and prostitutes who do things like that. No, he said, she says, it's not as you think. It's not as you think. You're not going to believe this, but I'm asking you to believe it. And she tells him what Gabriel has, has said. And what's happening? Look, I have never had sex with anybody. Well, you, you, the guy's in the, to say in the dilemma is an understatement. But fortunately, God is, uh, speaks to him. And, uh, it, and, and one night, um, uh, an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you to give him the name Jesus and he will save his people from their sin. Wow. So fortunately, he, he now is convinced that this is supernatural. This is Mary's telling the truth. And so now we come now to, to, where we, to, to chapter 2, as it were. And she's approaching term. She's nearly at term. He said, look, I've got to go to Bethlehem. I have to go. There's a deadline. All the, we have to go or else there'll be serious trouble. Now the thing is, she didn't have to go. It's only the, all the, only the men had to go. Why does he take her? Well, actually, it's fairly obvious. He's not going to leave her in the village on his own, on her own, with all the tittle-tattle. And he, he doesn't know what women can do, and the men, to this poor girl who's pregnant. Because they can work out the dates. And this, I think by the time he sets off, there may well have been a wedding ceremony. But he's not going to leave her. Besides... You know, he loves her. He wants to be with her. And, and he wants to be with her as she gives birth. And not only that, if this thing is, this holy thing as it's called, it, if it is the Son of God, whatever that means, he wants to be there. 
This has never happened before in the history of the world. And um, if he's, this child is the son of God, he wants to be there. And um, so anyway, off they go. And uh, I don't know how you fancy it, ladies, if you're pregnant and you're mid, you know, seven or eight months gone. And by the way, we, uh, we got, I'm having the child in Birmingham. And by the way, we're going on a donkey. Not a big deal. I mean, you know, really? <laughs> really? Is there not? No, there's no bus. We're going on a donkey, you know. It's a long way. And it's not a flat road like the M40. So anyway, off they set. And, um, and it simply says, while they were there, we don't know how long they were there. Uh, we don't know, you know, how long they stayed after the child was born. But it simply says there was no room for them in the inn. So they come to Bethlehem. The word that's used for inn is not even the big word that you use for an inn in, 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 the, in, in the Greek. It's, don't think it's like a premier lodge or a travel lodge, you know, or the holiday inn, the holiday inn where you stay, you know. This, the word is simply a, a municipal shelter with a few rooms. That's all it is. It's not the posh word for hotel. There's a, and of course, there's a census going on, so you've got returning officers filling every room. And th- this folk from the north arrived. She's very pregnant. I'm sorry, sweetheart, there's nothing here. I don't know whether it was an innkeeper, but you'll have to put that in your nativity anyway. But, um, I mean, so any, but fortunately, all these places had a sort of a lean-to, a garage, a, a stable, where you put your mule, your donkey, your horse, and there'd be a few milk cows. So it's there, in that place. There's no nice delivery suite, no running water, hot and cold water. Hot water, was that? You've got to boil it. But anyway, she, she gives birth. And she, Mary, gives birth to her firstborn. Now, you know from Matthew 13 that she has other children. She is a virgin to this time. She's never had sex with a man until Jesus is born. She has other brothers. He has other brothers and sisters, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and sisters. But at this stage, she is a virgin. And she's the firstborn. And it simply says she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in, in a manger, in a feeding stall, where you feed, out of which you feed cattle. Well, it's handy. It's knee height, you know. And that's all it was. She has some cloths with her. She's taking them with her. Some more sheeting, and she would, you know, wrap him clean as best they could. And, um, I mean, this, it's significant, this, because he deliberately comes to the lowest place, the st- smelliest, stinkiest place. I've worked many years in stables and, uh, and cattle sheds. You know, you can go home at night, and you can never get the smell off your clothes, you know? And you imagine all the baby clothes, they're all smelling of cows and horses and mules. And wonderful odour, you know. Anyway, that is the setting. But the big thing, my friends, is not the, na- the world setting or the national setting or even the personal setting. The, the point of it all is the cosmic setting. That's the difference. That's the difference. This one, the born says, the angel gave is the son of the Most High. Or as he says to, to Joseph, he is the son of God. And, and later, when 
Those who got to know him, like John, Jesus' friend, says that he is the word, the word of God. The one who spoke everything into being. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word means he was face to face with God, and the word was God. This is none other than God. This is the big thing. This is what makes it extraordinary. Not that it's born in a stable, or, you know, it's all the discomfiture of it. No, no, John says... He was in the world, and all things, all things were made by him. Paul the Apostle says the same. He made all things. Now let's just stop there. Let's just get, this is the big thing. I mean, look at our solar system. We have, here's our sun, which in the terms of astronomy is a quite a small star. It's 93 million miles from here. It burns at 6,000 degrees. Light takes 12 seconds. Is it 12 or 8? Eight? 8. 8, I think it is. It's quick anyway to get from the sun to here. Now our sun is in the, 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 the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. There's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Our sun is 23,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. To travel across our galaxy will take you between 100 and 120,000 light years just to cross it. And our galaxy is just one of 100 billion galaxies. And the scientists tell us that the farthest galaxy they've, they've assessed is 13 billion light years away. Now let me try and blow your minds. Light travels, you know this, 186,000 miles a second, which when I do that, that click, light has traveled seven times around the earth, just the length of that click. So traveling at that speed, it will still take you 13 billion years to get to the end of known space. All things were created by him. This is the big thing. This is the magic and sparkle it all, my friends. Not Marx's man. This is, this, is this is the great thing. This is the big thing. He comes. The God who for all eternity has been spirit becomes a man. He becomes a fetus. He has eyebrows. He has two elbows. He has two small kidneys, he has a spleen, he kicks a cry against the amniotic sac of his mother, he punches her stomach, and she comes to term. The God becomes a man. That's the big thing. That's the huge thing. He swims in this amniotic fluid for nine months and almost. He made a thousand billion galaxies. Sorry, a hundred billion galaxies. It wasn't exaggerated. Becomes a man. He doesn't send a messenger. He doesn't tweet, doesn't God. He doesn't send a text or an email or a picture or a video or a photo or anything like that. He doesn't even send a messenger. The, why we're here in this room, why we, everything we stand for in this room is that God became a man, fully man, fully man. Because God is three persons, he can come in the person of his son on earth without rupturing the Trinity. 
You see, we think of creation as an amazing miracle. It's amazing. We look at creation in a macroscopic way. We look through an electronic microscope, you know, and we see the wonders of inner space. But it is nothing compared to this miracle that this God chooses to become a man. The resurrection is wonderful that a man is raised from the dead. But it is nothing the fact that God shrunks it were to be a man, incomprehensibly made man. I mean, the end of time, it will be spectacular, according to the book of Revelation, when judgment comes and all the th- everything is revealed and all the throne and God reveals himself. That's what the Hallelujah Chorus sings. But it's nothing compared to this miracle. This is the, the great thing. And Jesus comes and, and um, he was being with the Father from all eternity. It makes him known. He, says Paul, was in very nature God. The very form of God. The word is morphe. The outward, he has the outward form of God. He has the inward form of God. It's the essence of, he is of the essence of his stuff. That is what he got. The unalterable, unchangeable stuff of God. The morphe of God. That's what he is. He cannot be anything else. And, and yet, in a strange way, he becomes a man. He was very nature God. He doesn't count equality with God, says Paul, as something to be grasped at, something to be held at at all costs. He doesn't hold on to his rights. No. He becomes a man. He becomes a man. He, t- he takes on different schemes. The word Paul uses schemata. He takes on different appearances, as it were. But his essence is the, ch- is the same. I will always be a man. I was conceived as a man. I became a man as a toddler, as a, a, a little boy, as a, a youth, a young man, an adult, an older man, and now I'm in the prime of life. But I'll always be a man for all eternity. And Jesus will always be God for all eternity. But he comes. He, he, he doesn't lose his essence. He says... And he was made nothing. He emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself. Why did he do that? Because actually what he's saying is the best way to demonstrate what God is like, he takes the form of a servant. That is is the amazing thing. He, He takes the form of a servant. The best way to show equality with God is he becomes a servant. His power is amazing, but his love is just as great. His grace, omnipotence is wonderful, but his mercy is as great. Every attribute is great and huge and magnificent. His strength is great, but his wisdom is great. His tenderness is great. And the best way to demonstrate what it means to be God is to become a servant. Now, I haven't time to unpack that anymore, simply to leave it there. He completely submits the will of God. He doesn't leave his glory by in one sense. He leaves the signs of his glory. Occasionally it flashes out, doesn't it? In his miracles at transfiguration. But in one sense, his character is his greatest glory, isn't it? And he comes. And he comes. What is God like? What is God like? The best demonstration of God is to look at Jesus because he is perfectly Jesus. He, a very nature God. He's the stuff of God, the morphe of God. He will never change. 
He never acts out of character. Anyway, he deliberately comes to the stingiest, smelliest place you can find. It's symbolic. Why? He comes, and my time has gone. He comes. Just getting going now, and he's gone. <laughs> Have a word with the man with the noses, would you? <laughs> Why does he come? Because we are fo- because we're a mess. My, our sin is so desperate, and the, and the future of men and women outside God is so horrendously desperate and awful that God is prepared to become a man. Because we have blown it. We have said to God, get stuffed. I'll do my own thing. I'll live my own life. It's my, I don't, listen to the people. I can be a good person. I don't need God. I've got eight GCSEs. I don't need God. got three A-levels, actually. No, but seriously, we tell God, keep distance if there, if there is such a thing. God has sinned. Man has sinned, therefore God comes. He comes to be our substitute, to die, to take the punishment we deserve. See, what does it mean to be a man? To be a man, my friends, you have to have a family tree. You have to have an ancestry. You, you can't enter the human race until you're part of a, a family. That's why we get so much in the Bible about you know, genealogies. It's significant. Get this in your head. He became a man. He became part of the human race. Totally. That's why he lived. It's so and so begat, begat, begat. Why all that? So, just to get into our thick heads, God became a man. A full man. And he did it for you and me. He did it for you and me. That's why he came. And to be human, you have to be connected. He came to put us right with God. And the next few weeks, we're going to talk about that. You know, in a few weeks' time, some of you will perhaps watch uh, from King's College, Cambridge, the nine carols and lessons. And, uh, but at the end of it, if you ever go into King's College Cambridge, there's a wonderful picture of the adoration of the Magi by Sir Paul Peter Rubens. Anyway, you remember a few years ago, some vandal went in and hacked it and made a terrible mess. It's huge. Made a real mess of it. But actually, a few weeks later, there was a lovely, typical uh, sort of British, down, you know, downplaying it. And it, there was just a notice underneath it said... It is believed that this masterpiece can be restored. And it is restored. Now that is why Jesus came. You were made in the image of God. Most of you, many of you have said, well, I'm not really bothered. Most of you have realized. Because we've made a mess. We've done our own thing. We want to be center of our life. And the image of God is very damaged. Almost vestigial, almost erased, but it's still there. And God has come on earth. He can do no more, my friends, to restore the masterpiece that could be you. Because if you would see a redeemed person in glory, as they will be in the future, if you saw them now, you'd just think they were a... You'd want to worship that person. If you could see the person you would be, you would want to worship that person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came on earth to begin the restoration. It is believed, my friends, that this master, which is you, defaced, defiled, can be restored. Final story. You remember at the end of 
Jesus' life, they, they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to arrest him. They're going to get him now. They've cornered him. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they come for him. They're, they're temple police and uh, Roman accompanying battalion. And um, anyway, Peter. Peter, always going to help. Peter gets his short sword out and goes up to the poor old priest's assistant and chops his ear off. Well, it's, there it is, swinging there. So Jesus just goes up to him and just touches him, just takes the ear and just puts it there and leaves it. Now, it's healed. Imagine, just it's purely fictitious, this. This man, Malchus, his name is, was, would say, I'm gonna, Peter, I'm taking you to court. You don't assault people with swords like that. You can't do that. I'm going to make sure you finish in jail. So anyway, he brings him to court. And Peter's in court. And, and he said, this man shot my ear off. And the judge said, well, well could, we, could we have a, a medical expert to examine the man's ear? So, okay, a medical man comes and he examines his ear. Well, your honor, he says, that ear's never been chopped off. There's not a scar, a wound, there's nothing there. It's absolutely normal. And the judge says, case dismissed, off you go. Next case, please. The point is this. When Jesus comes and touches your life, he begins to heal. He deals with all the mistakes, all the grot, all the sin, all the gubbins of the past and the future. So when the devil comes and says, what about all the things you did? What about all this? There's no evidence because Jesus removes it. Because actually in a, in a week or two's time, the angels couldn't stay in heaven. They were so keen to get on earth. So they sent a small choir down to Bethlehem. And they, they come to the shepherds. And they say, yeah, this is great. Look, unto you is born this day a savior. Someone's got to salvage all the mess of your life. To us, to us, yeah. And his name is Jesus. He's down there. He's a baby. Really? And that's it. Unto you is born someone who will heal you. Someone will put right all the mess and he'll put you right with God. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. He'll forgive you. He'll give you power. He'll give you purpose. He'll give you hope. He'll give you a life to live. And he'll begin to make you the masterpiece you were born to be. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why we make a big deal out of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing gift. Father, I do pray that the Holy Spirit, he will come and he will take the truth of your amazing, unspeakable gift and burn it into our hearts so that will drive our hearts in worship and praise and obedience and mission and charity and everything we need. Lord, fill our hearts with the truth that we might truly serve you for the rest of our lives. Restore your salvation in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.